0: today. Today we're going to have another very interesting show. We're going to be exploring with one of the world's leading environmental scientists, the water crisis, the global water crisis. It's a very serious matter. Uh, Words cannot touch the seriousness of it, but we'll do our best to approximate. We'll be speaking with Lester Brown, who the Washington Post called Quote, One of the most influential thinkers. The Telegraph of Calcutta refers to him as quote, the guru of the environmental movement. In 1986, the Library of Congress requested his personal papers, noting that his writings quote, have already strongly affected thinking about problems of world population and resources. Lester Brown has authored or co authored some 54 books and is working on one currently about the water crisis. One of the world's most widely published authors, his books have appeared in some 40 languages. Among his earlier books are Man, Land, and Food, World Without Borders, and Building a Sustainable Society. His 1995 book, Who Will Feed China?, challenged the official view of China's food prospects spawning hundreds of conferences and seminars worldwide. Lester Brown is the recipient of many prizes and awards, including 25 honorary degrees, a MacArthur Fellowship, the 1987 United Nations Environmental Prize, the 1989 Worldwide Fund for Nature Gold Medal, and the 1994 Blue Planet Prize for his quote, exceptional contributions to solving global environmental problems. In 2012, Lester Brown was inducted into the Earth Hall of Fame in Kyoto. Interestingly, uh, relatively recently, on June 30th of 2015, at the age of 81, Lester Brown stepped down from the Earth Policy Institute, which he founded along with the World Watch Institute, and closed the Earth Policy Institute. In July 2014, we were in time for Lester to have been a guest on A Better World when I was hosting the show Progressive Film Hour and that show focused on a film that he was the really the star of called Plan B with the uh, narrator of Matt Damon. You can find that on our website, a abetterworld.tv So it's with great pleasure, honor, and privilege to invite Lester Brown onto today's show to talk about the fundamental problem that we are facing today in our use of water, our consumption of water for industrial pur- purposes, for commercial and for agricultural purposes, and for personal purposes. Well, we don't seem to have uh, kind of a global measurement of how much water we have and how it gets utilized or abused. That will be the subject of today's show to look at just how serious this issue is and how we all really need to be mindful of it, aware of it educated about it and to be able to then possibly change some of our own personal patterns in regard to this precious precious element from which all life comes so Lester Brown, welcome back to A Better World, a pleasure to have you
1: that's all. I'm glad to be here.
0: I'm so glad. So glad that we were able to to put this together. Lester, uh, you have a lifetime of working on global issues, obviously, as your, as your stellar uh, uh, biography attests, and you've been doing so much good work. It's interesting that now in what we call your retirement, you're working on a book that I believe you must feel is addressing the most central of all questions regarding our environment, and that's water. Tell us, what is it that really got you going on this project?
1: Well, as as one who who follows global environmental issues and trends, and uh, importantly the food uh, population uh, issue, uh, you become aware of the fact that um, we're adding 81 million people a year now to the world's population, they all need water, and there's no, no relationship at all between water policy and population policy. I think the you know the minister of water and the minister of population and family planning never talk with each other. It's as though they were they were unrelated. Mm-hmm. But but what we're we're seeing is water tables are falling uh, in so many places in the world. Um, throughout the northern half of China, for example, in every state in India, throughout the Middle East and North Africa, in the central United States, between the Mississippi River and the Rocky Mountains, we have one of the world's largest aquifers. It's called the Ogallala Aquifer, or the, the High Plains Aquifer, and we're over that heavily now. Um, and as you look at Various aquifers around the world, and there's been a um, quite a bit of research in the last two or three years uh, using, um, um, using satellites to detect changes in water concentrations and levels underground. So we can begin to see how many of the world's major aquifers are being depleted, and, and basically we're we're overpumping in many places in the world. You can overpump in the short run, but not in the long run. And and that uh, that day of reckoning is beginning to show up here and there, as um, as water supplies tighten.
0: So, if you look across the entire planet from a satellite perspective, for instance, where does it appear that the water to usage ratio, which of course is population, but it also doesn't have to do with industrial development, where is? The weaker points, and where is it more uh, seemingly sustainable a relationship and ratio?
1: The, uh, the part of the world where water tables are now falling fastest is in northwestern India. And this directly affects two or three hundred million people in India and a little bit and across the border in, um, in Pakistan.
0: Pakistan. But water
1: yeah. tables are going down faster there than anywhere in the world. And, again, this is, this, this is the sort of thing that satellites can uh, can pick up. Uh, other mm-hmm. places in the world, um, I mean, other than northwestern India, is that in India, water tables are falling in every state. Throughout the northern half of China, water tables are falling. Um, and then we look at, at the Middle East and, and North Africa. Um, and in, in some countries in the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia, for example, they basically have depleted their, their only aquifer and, and now must import all the grain. Everything they eat is, is imported. Um, in the United States, we have, between the Mississippi River and the Rocky Mountains, the, the huge uh, Ogallala aquifer, and that, too, is being depleted. In another, depending on which part of the aquifer you're looking at, some of it's already gone dry on the southern end, where it's not as thick as it is um, further north. Um, but that aquifer is being depleted, and and the wells are starting to go dry. Some have dried up and and been closed. But um, this is sort of a one-way street that the world is on, including us, and I, I also could include, in in, in addition, to the, the, this large area in the midwestern United States and the Great Plains, um, the Central Valley of California, which is one of the, uh, the most concentrated productive uh, areas in the world, um, an area that produces so much of the, fruit, uh, the, the fruits and vegetables and nuts that uh, that we uh, we eat. So, it, this is not just a developing country thing. This is our problem too.
0: Yes, right here at home. You know, I've always had the understanding, Lester, and I would love a little clarity on this, that just as Einstein showed us that energy cannot be destroyed, it changes shape, but it does not get destroyed. So there's always, you could say, an an equal amount, a consistent, constant amount of energy in, well, the universe. So Mm -hmm. it was always in my understanding that Somewhat comparable to that, there was a hydrologic cycle that even though water changed shape from ice to water to vapor, and some of it went underground and some of it came from underground, and we have the oceans and the lakes and the ponds and the rivers and the tributaries, overall the essential volume of water remained somewhat constant. After all, our own bodies consist of water, water going in and a form of water, of course, coming out. So are you saying that that is not true and that the water overall is actually depleting? Well,
1: there, um, 99% of the water in the world is either salt water which we can't drink, or it is tied up in, in glaciers and uh, um, and um, ice icebergs ice. and so forth. So that yeah. leaves us with one percent. We're we're working with one percent um, that we can um, that we can drink. That's in underground uh, aquifers that we can uh, um, can pump. And and what is happening is that um, as our numbers have increased. Um, over the decades and the last few generations, and they've increased quite a bit. We've had a tripling of world population over the last several decades. Um, that obviously increases demand. Um, but it's also um, the, the demand for water is increased by rising affluence. So it's not just population growth. It is largely population growth, but there's also an affluence issue in that as we, as we become more affluent, we move up the food chain and consume more grain-based livestock products, uh, beef in the, from the feedlots and pork and chicken and so forth. And that takes uh, more grain. Uh, converting, uh, uh, Producing a, uh, a pound of beef in the feedlot takes about seven pounds of grain. A pound of pork, uh, about three pounds of grain. And for, for poultry, we're getting down now to one and a half or so, um, but that grain means water. It takes a 1,000 tons of water to produce a ton of grain. Um, and so the, uh, the growth in the demand for grain translates into growth in the demand for water. As I recall, in this country, the growth in uh, demand for grain has been going up by something like, um, no, not this country, but for the world, something like 43 million tons of grain per year. That translates into 43 billion tons of water needed um, to cover the annual uh, growth in demand. So we're looking at a, some fairly uh, um, impressive uh, growth in the, the the demand for water as a result of population growth and rising affluence. When we when we look at water scarcity. We we need to keep in mind that roughly 80 percent of the the water that we use, particularly the underground water, is is used for for agriculture to produce our food. So mm-hmm. it's not getting enough water to drink. You know, a few liters a day to drink that's that's easy. Um, but whereas we drink four liters a day, the the food we consume requires about um, um, two thousand liters to produce or 500 times as much. So in in one sentence, we eat 500 times as much water as we drink.
0: Mm. So it's interesting. It's uh, There are several variables involved here that make this a very complex issue. On one hand, you've got the natural water reserves, whatever they may be in a given geographical location. Number two, you have the use of that water f- measured by, to some extent, population. And what we see, as you said, is an ever-growing population. I Did you say 81 million people to the earth a year? That's a substantial further Uh, squeeze on water resources, then you have the increase of food consumption up, as you said, the food chain. And meaning that the simpler foods, let's say plant-based foods, uh, which require a certain amount of water, becomes almost geometrically multiplied when you go up the food chain to grains and then uh, to meats of different sorts. So it appears that these are the main we didn't even touch upon industrial use uh, fracking, um, any kind of manufacturing or production of mineral exploitation etc. All of these are very water intensive processes. How do those lay out next to the depletion of water reserves? Well in um
1: in round numbers, about twenty percent of the water we used is actually used in industry and um, in, in the um, um, in 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 factories in uh, and 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 in pumping uh, pumping oil um, Fracking takes a lot of water and it contaminates yes. a lot of water it's it's the most intensive most water intensive uh source of energy that we uh, that we use and one of the things that's going to happen is that because it does take a lot of water to um uh to mine coal for example to wash it and then to um to um, um, um use coal um use the burning of coal to heat so we can generate steam and, and run things um mm-hmm. that that takes quite a bit of uh, of water and one of the things that's going, that is happening as water becomes uh less abundant uh, more scarce Um, is that we're going to uh, find it more economic to shift to solar and wind energy than to continue to use coal because it takes so much water. And the the Chinese, incidentally, who had been thinking of coal big time in the future, are suddenly realizing they don't have the water to to, uh, process and burn uh, a lot of coal. So they're they're beginning to pick up the, the speed with wind and solar now. In fact, uh, recently in China, um, electricity from wind farms overtook that from nuclear power plants. So wind is becoming a major uh, source of uh, electricity in China uh, already, and, uh, and it's growing, yes. growing very fast.
0: So it's interesting. It sounds like it's not based on, let's say, the merits of wind and solar uh, that, and their own economics, which ends up ultimately to be uh, very favorable. And the work of economist Hazel Henderson has gone far to outline the strong economic basis for a solar based society. But it's because it's too costly from the water side to continue with the mining and the use of coal.
1: So I guess we
0: shouldn't be too picky about the motivation as long as the end result is positive. Right.
1: Um, One of the the interesting things um, uh, now um, is that the market is beginning to drive um, the installation of rooftop solar panels. Simply because, in many parts of this of this country, particularly in the in the in the, in the southwest um, um, solar panels can generate electricity about half the cost that the local utility charges for electricity, so the economics are now beginning to drive solar installations um, and and this is um, we 're going to see this uh, um, I've forgotten the exact rate of growth in the installation of solar panels, but it's like 30 or 40 percent a year. It's, it's big time. Oh and, and the same concerns are driving the investment in, uh, in, um, in wind energy. I mean, wind. I, I mentioned, yes. mentioned China earlier where wind has overtaken nuclear. I mean, it, it literally blew by it. I mean, it was just going so much faster than, uh, than nuclear that um, it's becoming a major source of energy now for the Chinese economy.
0: Isn't that interesting? I'm friendly with uh, the CEO of a company that makes wind turbines and has been dealing with China ever since Nixon was there, actually. He, this wow. fellow goes back to uh, dealing with China since the 70s, and I know he's been in uh, dialogue with the Chinese about acquiring his wind turbines for the past several years, so I, I, I sort of know firsthand about what you're talking about and their serious interest in it. They're also very interested in electric vehicles and replacing their gas-guzzling vehicles from cars to trucks to scooters because I've been connected to that kind of uh, change in thought and policy as well. In fact, there are many cities throughout China at this point, less that uh, people are not allowed to buy. They're, it's illegal to buy um, brand new scooters that are fossil fuel based. That's one right. must buy only secondhand. You know, or yep. they have to buy an electric scooter. Yep. You know.
1: And 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 we we also have seen some other countries really moving very fast in in developing um, wind and solar. Uh, Denmark is one of them, and uh, Denmark being in the North Sea has very good uh, uh, wind. I remember flying from Helsinki yeah. to Copenhagen couple of years ago and seeing all the, you know, hundreds of offshore wind turbines on the, on the, 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 the Dan- just off the Danish coast, as well as uh, wind turbines spread throughout uh, Denmark. It's, uh, um, it, it's really something to see uh, how many there are. And I think on, on uh, I think Denmark is getting something like 34% of its electricity from wind now. And on a good oh, day, money. when the wind is really strong, they can go up over half.
0: Very interesting. Well, Germany, of course, is one of the world leaders in that as well. I mean, right. they might be up to 35 or 40 percent between wind and solar, and they've also made a commitment not to go in the direction of nuclear any further after Fukushima, as I'm sure you recall. Can right. you talk about that okay. a little bit, and that is a, as a precedent for other countries to, to adopt?
1: Yeah, Angela and Merkel is a very strong supporter of um um she's chancellor of course of East, East Germany she's a very of 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 Germany, of Germany. she's a very yeah. strong uh, uh supporter and 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 Germany is is moving out front in in many ways in harnessing uh, uh both wind and um, and solar energy.
0: So, you know, Less, we're we're looking at um, overall alternative. They're called alternative only because they're just uh, allowed to be made mainstream very slowly by the uh, political and economic interests, which slow the progress down of becoming completely based on renewables. Uh, but as you say, no pun intended, the tides are changing, and uh, that's very, very good news. But turning back to water, uh, because it's all, as you're also saying here, it's all intermingled. These are not separate and distinct subjects, even though they may appear to be. One leads to the other. Uh, What is the solution, do you think, to the more um, sober and responsible use of water. What changes can we make in industry, in agriculture, and personally in this regard?
1: In in almost every uh, sector of the economy that uses water, whether it's agriculture or industry or the, or the energy sector, uh, uh, segment of uh, the industrial sector. There are a lot of opportunities for increasing the efficiency of um, of, of water use, and um, uh, one of those is shifting to renewable sources of energy. Um, it's interesting to look at Texas, which was you know uh, where we got so much of our oil historically, but Texas is now taking the lead with wind energy, and it is not only um, I mean, there are huge investments being made in Texas now, huge wind farms under under construction, the biggest we've ever seen in this country, certainly. And they're building transmission lines uh, from Texas into Louisiana and Mississippi, for example, which are nearby states, but which don't have uh, the same sort of uh, – uh, strength in, in wind energy that Texas has. So it's interesting to see Texas, which was once our leading oil state, yes. now now becoming our leading wind state and planning to export the wind as they have um, oil. And and we have Very interesting. another interesting thing is the extent to which the, what I call the smart money, the people that have a lot of money, are investing in um, um, in in wind and and solar, um, I mean Warren Buffett has been a leader. He, I guess, it was four years ago committed fifteen billion dollars to developing uh, solar and wind in the in the Southwest. I think it was mostly mm-hmm. solar in that investment. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of years later, he he invested another uh, fifteen billion. So um, these are billion, not million. They they make a difference. Yes. Yeah. And, and then there are a number of others. It. Uh Ted Turner, for example, another billionaire, is investing heavily in uh, I think he has seven uh, now seven uh solar power plants in the southwestern uh, uh US. And then there's um a, a T. Another billionaire. Boone T Boone Pickens. is is, is, is investing in wind. Um, there's another billionaire whose name I can't quite remember is a Denver-based guy who invested in, uh, made his money with, uh, with oil and gas, but he's now mm-hmm. investing heavily in wind. He's building in Wyoming, which is a wind-rich state, a 3,000-megawatt wind farm that's equal to three nuclear wow. power plants, a 3,000-megawatt oh, wow. wind farm, and a 700-mile transmission line to feed it into uh, California and Arizona. Uh, so mm. we're beginning to see some some big time thinking now. This is not not a marginal sort of thing anymore. But whether it's the Chinese getting more electricity from wind farms than from nuclear power plants, or in in the West uh, getting these uh, really massive investments in uh, in wind and solar energy, is, is is really pretty exciting.
0: Exactly, it's very exciting, and it's interesting because it it makes the whole uh, area of fracking, which is so fraught with questions about the uh, water-intensive use, and then the following pollution, toxicity of the water, and of course the films by Josh Fox called Gasland 1 and 2 further highlight a lot of the dangers, the chemical contamination of uh, fracking chemicals that are usually not even disclosed into the water supply. It's so interesting, I, pardon the bad expression, but it's like fracking is left hanging in the wind <laughs> and while the renewables are coming online. How is it that even people could consider in this new day and age lesson uh, fracking as a viable alternative, not to get overly political, but even as one of the Democratic candidates for president is talking about fracking as in natural gas, as an in interim technology. But you just outlined rather clearly that the amount of investment in wind and solar is massive by some of the leading businessmen in our country, who have actually, some of whom, made their money in oil and gas and are leaving it behind in, in place of uh, wind and solar. That's
1: right. I mean, I, I think there's a, a growing recognition now within um, within the energy uh, sector and certainly in the public sector that fracking is really a dead-end street. It doesn't, doesn't take us anywhere. And the argument, you know, that they're buying time and so forth doesn't really um, – uh, add up either because in the same time that you're, it takes a lot of investment in in fracking to you know have a commercial operation, and and it's also short lived. You know it's only going to last for you know 20 or 30 years, and uh, and the uh, the gas will be uh, will be gone. Um, and the, yeah. and the great thing the great thing about investing in wind and solar is that you know it it can since we last forever. I mean, eventually you have to replace the bearings and the, you know, the wind turbines and so forth. But um, yeah. it's um, it's um, it's you you can't you can't deplete the wind resources or the solar resources. You know how much you use today does not affect how much you have tomorrow, and that's what's so exciting about wind and solar. These are yes. not depletable resources, and for the first time since the Industrial Revolution began, we can now invest in energy sources that essentially will last forever. <laughs> That's such or at a least beautiful point. The earth itself.
0: Yes, exactly. I mean, you know, from a, an entrepreneurial business point of view, what could be better than investing in something that does not deplete?
1: Right, right.
0: It, it, no, it's, it's just a- so common sense and yet the mental mindset remains uh, too fixed on the fossil fuel industry only because they they dug a hole so deep for themselves. They want to do what they can to amortize and to continue to profit, even though they know it's, as you said, it's a one-way street. It's It's a limited, finite resource that wreaks huge havoc. In fact, I think it was just recently, less that it came out in um, news, alternative news, of course, not your uh, mainstream news media, that, well, of course it was known that Exxon was doing its scientific research into the effect of fossil fuels on the environment back in the mid-70s. But now it has come out that the United States government was aware and conducting its own research going back to the mid to late 1950s. And that's just in the United States. It could well be that similar kind of research was taking place in then the Soviet Union, which was always advanced in its scientific uh, queries. So certainly we know here at home there was foreknowledge of the dangers, let alone, of course, the wisdom of Rachel Carson, who didn't need facts and figures necessarily to do her figuring. She right. just walked. Oh, she used God's gift of her eyes and her nose, you know, and her ears to suppose and surmise what we were heading toward if we did not change our ways. Right.
1: Well, one of the interesting things to me is to see um, how. Um, how we've had this sort of social mobilization um, in the form of divestment campaigns, which initially started on college campuses when when young people, you know, were pressing the the, the, the university management to to um, uh, move away from coal-fired electricity, which is what most of them were using, and to shift to uh, to renewables. But we're seeing now a huge divestment campaign. Um, in fossil fuels, it's gone far beyond universities. I mean, it's it's yes. um, you know um, it's a worldwide it's tar-
0: phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, and, and
1: and 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 everything, and it's just a a very exciting process to see how how fast it's um, it's moving and and what it could. I, I mean, one of the byproducts of this divestment um, is is what it can do for you know to help minimize climate change.
0: Yes, exactly, exactly. In fact, the Rockefeller Foundation, if I'm not mistaken, a few months back, uh, divested was very vocal about their divestment from Exxon and all fossil fuels, uh, from their enormous, you know, likely multi-billion dollar portfolio, you know. Not all of that was in oil, of course, but they, their decision to not only do it, but to be public about it it's very interesting. It has a very lots of reverberations across I, the world. I,
1: I, yeah, I, I think that was the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, at least initially, and probably Rockefeller Foundation also founded. But it's interesting probably. that, that yeah. John D. Rockefeller, the, the first, you know, who was sort of the big oil uh, person in the early, yeah. early decades of the oil industry, that his money, which is in the Rockefeller Brothers Fund now, is being used – to uh, support these divestment campaigns
0: and so forth. Exactly. I mean, Isn't that ironic? Yeah. Exactly. It, it, it really tells you something. And it wasn't it the Rockefeller Brothers that uh, supported you in the founding of the World Watch Institute originally?
1: That's right. They gave us a half-million-dollar startup grant.
0: Yes. Yeah. So it's interesting, uh, you know, to see how the tributaries, if you will, of the original source of funds from oil have now streamed, if you will, into alternatives for our future. It's it's actually very good news. It really is. Let's let everybody know you are listening to A Better World Radio with Mitchell J. Rabin. We're on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight or Standard Time. And we're also on A Better World TV every Monday evening at this point at 7 p.m. on Manhattan Neighborhood Network. So you can tune in to both of these shows. And if you do not yet get our newsletter, make sure to go to www.abetterworld.tv That's abetterworld.tv and sign up for our free weekly newsletter which announces who our guests will be on each show and what the subjects will be and a blog or two about this or that related to this very powerful idea of you and me creating a better world, all of us together. It's a collective effort. So please become part of a Better World community and family. We welcome you, and uh, please be uh, active through our website. We are speaking today with the venerable Lester Brown, environmental scientist, who is truly one of the world leaders in understanding the dynamics of environmental crises, climate change, and today we're looking specifically at the water crisis, although you, those of you listening can hear very clearly that when you speak about the water crisis, you're also speaking about renewables or uh, and divesting from the use of fossil fuels and the change in agricultural methods, which we'll get to in a moment, as well as uh, the change perhaps in eating habits because of the difference in the food change chain related to the consumption of water. So less in your background, you've worked for the Department of Agriculture, you have been an advisor there to the the top guns there, you've you've got a degree in agricultural economics. What is it that we could do as a society as a human community to re- change our eating habits our dietary habits that would more respect our water and uh and uh change the dynamics you were referring to earlier of depleting our water table
1: mm-hmm. well the um the the key to how much water we uh, we use for I mean, we don't really drink much water, just a, a few liters a day, but it's, it takes a couple of thousand liters of, sorry, tons of water a day to produce, sorry, 2,000 liters of water a day to produce the food we eat. So it's, mm-hmm. it's the water that's invested in the food is the key. And within the food economy, um, one of the things to keep in mind is where we are living on the food chain, where we're consuming uh, just mostly vegetables and, and, and grains and so forth, and, and fruit and nuts, or whether we're consuming a lot of meat, especially if it's feedlot beef or um, uh, pork, um, then we're looking at um, uh, fairly substantial consumption of grain and therefore uh, water, um, mm-hmm. the, um, keeping in mind that a ton of grain requires a thousand tons of water to produce. So you can begin to see how our diet—a um, low-grain diet—is one where you consume very little in the way of um, livestock products, um, and a high-grain diet is where we depend heavily on on beef and uh, pork and poultry um, in in our uh, in our diets.
0: So if you've done the arithmetic and you look at the northwest of India, for instance, different parts of Africa and even right here in the United States where the water is becoming so severely depleted such as the Ogallala, Aquifer, etc. Uh, are you suggesting that if there were a rather substantial dietary change among um, Indians Africans, Americans, that we would see a much more balanced use of water, where the depletion would not be happening as radically as it is.
1: Yes, and uh, one of the things that's going to drive this, and in fact, one of the, the, the the key indicator that's going to signal water serious water scarcity will be food prices. And it'll be rising food prices because we we use so much water in producing food that when water becomes scarce, it it drives up the the price of food. So there will be a market-driven uh, reduction in how high those of us in the affluent countries live on the food chain, and and it's going to squeeze people in the low-income countries who are having, you know, are are finding it difficult even now to afford enough, uh, enough food. So it's, it's the cities and low-income countries that are going to be suffering the most as water supplies tighten, and, and falling water tables translates into rising food prices.
0: Interesting. So we could look back a few years ago with the beginning of the Arab Spring, which actually sprung into action as a result of rising food prices. And it got tipped off, of course, in Tunisia, where that one gentleman, the uh, fruit uh, vendor, uh, you know, put himself on fire, self-immolated, as a result of a protest of the government and allowing the stop. I think it had to do with a a tariff they were putting on the sale of his his fruit, and it was Mm -hmm. driving them all bankrupt. They could not afford to even be vendors because of the rising food prices and the rising tariffs. So look at what happened across the world with the Arab Spring and is still going on. So right. I, I, that just underscores your point about the seriousness of rising food prices. So in a sense, you could say this dilemma, the water crisis, is driving the world back toward a plant-based diet, which of course so interestingly has been proven over and over again to be the healthier diet anyway, which would relieve a tremendous amount of stress and pressure on the healthcare industry and the effects of the costs to government about running various healthcare uh, you know, um, supplies and you know, providing healthcare right. services. Right.
1: Well, one of the things I've been, been looking at, and, and I'm not alone in this, others have been as well,
0: is um,
1: which are the countries that are the most vulnerable to tightening water supplies? And, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously in the arid parts of the Middle East and North Africa, but there, there, um, there are other countries as well, Nigeria, for example. Um, one of the consequences of of water scarcity uh, and water, um, water depletion is desertification. Um, we yeah. we think, you know, falling um, water tables means uh, uh, rising water prices, and and that's true. But it's also true that the the, the loss of water leads to desertification, and we're now seeing that um, in Nigeria, for example. Um, the the desert,
0: the Sahara desert, is
1: moving southward into Nigeria, and it's slowly moving the Nigerian population, squeezing it uh, in an ever smaller smaller area uh, toward the coast. Um, we're now seeing Nigerians migrate eastward to, to sort of escape that mounting uh, pressure. But desertification is one of the consequences of the drying out that's associated with with aquifer depletion and 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 um, uh, a restriction in in the amount of water in the um, in in the system and Nigeria happens to have close to two hundred million people so it is um, it is a major um, uh, player in the, uh, in africa and 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 is facing um, potential instability and 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 conceivably even could become a failed state um, as a result of the 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 desert encroachment moving south and squeezing the population into an ever smaller area between the the southward moving desert and the and the coast um, so it's 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 not just you know the Arab Middle East that's facing water shortages there it's It's showing up in many uh, many parts of the world. And um, is 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 having already uh, consequences that are that that are difficult to deal with. It's just not clear what you do in a country like Nigeria, with close to 200 million people, when the area of land you have to 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 live in and to and, and that is productive is is shrinking. So yes. the it's it's basically a conflict between continually growing populations, and, and rapidly growing populations. I mentioned Nigeria. I could have talked about Pakistan, which is really uh, on the ropes. And there are a number of responsible people now in places like the World Bank, for example, who are expressing doubt as to whether Pakistan can survive the the
0: desiccation,
1: the drying out uh, of the country. Um, and uh, um, I I mention that because um, it's an example of um, how severe uh, the lack of water is is becoming. And when you have senior officials at the World Bank expressing doubt as to whether, you know, countries with a couple hundred million people are going to survive or not, um, I think you have to take it seriously.
0: Yes, I think so, too. And is the reason that Pakistan and the northwestern area of India and that continent is experiencing this level of uh, water reduction and depletion is because specifically of population increase? Um, Or are there other factors involved? No, there's
1: there's there's enormous population uh, uh, growth in both Pakistan and India. Uh, I think India is adding 19 million people a year. Uh, I mean, that's almost another Australia. Um, you know, mm. good weather or, or, or bad, uh, there are that many more people to feed each year. And so in yes. you know, some parts of the country, uh, we're seeing land literally dry out. I mean, I've talked about Northwestern uh uh, India where um, where we have the fastest drop in water tables anywhere in the world. But it's also true in Maharashtra which is further south in uh, in India. There, there are communities there that are being abandoned because there just is no longer uh, the water to support them. Um, and, and where are the people going? Um, that's the question. I mean most of them are heading for cities because they hope they can get a job there. But Yes. Um, one, of the, one of the most interesting things you see in, uh, in some of the Middle Eastern countries, Pakistan and India, is that the public water systems in the cities can no longer provide enough water for the people. So there's a mm. huge trucking industry that's developed. I think in um, um, in Chennai, used to be uh, Bombay in India, there are now yes. a few hundred trucks that go out into the countryside where there's still water and um, and, um uh, buy it. Mumbai from managers for, was Bombay, For a yes, very yes. low price and then take it into the cities and park their trucks and sell it to people along the street. I mean, like, like good humor men selling, you know.
0: Oh, my. Toys. Oh, my. And certainly for Westerners, uh, we don't drink the uh, local water in India. Everything is by plastic bottles. That is another environmental disaster is the plastics in our environment and in our waterways, including oceans strangulating fish. Yeah, and turtles and all sorts of things. Yeah, And turtles, Um, exactly, exactly. So uh, in other words, what we're seeing then is we're seeing refugees of areas even inside their own country. We can look to Syria, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this. It's been my understanding, Les, that the entire political crisis in Syria, perhaps not the entire, but a large part of it where it was certainly instigated by the fact that Syrian farmers were running out of water and therefore couldn't produce food for the market or for their own families. And they began to protest against the government for some help with irrigation or what have you to assist them in being able to provide. And the government was turning a deaf ear to them, and that's what started to lead to their form of Arab Spring and uprising, which of course has lasted now for over five years and has turned into uh, you know a real hell on earth, so to speak. But you know, here again is a political and economic crisis that had its beginning in a water crisis. Is that your understanding of what happened with Syria? Water has been a major factor there, and there are now
1: a couple million uh, uh, Syrians and, and including some Iraqis, in Jordan, um, which did have a population of four million, now has a population of six million,
0: with the oh additional my. two million people living in camps.
1: And Jordan's water tables were already falling, and now with these camps, they're falling even faster. So um, the the the, the water issue is, is involved in so many uh, different situations and ways that um, with with Syria and Iraq we thought more of, you know, political conflict and so forth, and that is a factor. But water yes. is also a factor. I mean, farmers, and when they're trying to decide whether to stay or not, knew they were going to be, uh, you know, the wells would, would be going dry before long. Uh, some already have, so, so they pulled stakes and, and left. And we're going to see... Um, huge flows of water refugees in various parts of the world. Uh we've seen it in Pakistan where in the n- in the north around a town called Quetta, Q U E T T A, which is the capital of the northernmost province there. There are little have mm-hmm. been millions of people moving south um, because the the water basin was had gone completely dry. They'd pumped all the water that was available. And and so that that I mean, the, the area of Pakistan that can, can support population is shrinking because of aquifer depletion. And at some point, the Pakistanis are going to be pushed into India, uh, where they're already um, having some of the the, you know, the fastest drawdowns uh, um, of, of water anywhere in the world. So it's, it's an issue that's going to affect the future. I, I mean, we, when, when I look at the last century, I think of it as the oil century. This is going to be the water century. And water is yes. just going to so dominate not only our personal well-being, but international affairs and, and, and economic growth. There are parts of the world where economic growth is going to come to a halt because you need water to keep expanding an economy. And if you don't have it, yes. it becomes difficult to expand.
0: Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. This is, this is how critical it is. It's, it's hard to describe how, I mean, if our bodies are made of water, it is the fundamental biological element from which all life comes. And if you mess with it for too much, too much for too long, you'll have the kind of disasters that you're talking about. Coming back to, for a moment, Nigeria last you were talking about the process of desertification and how serious it is. What is the rate at which that is occurring that you know of in Nigeria? Um, how is that measurable?
1: The, uh, the Nigerians have calculated uh, the amount of land that they're losing to desert on an annual basis. So they've 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 analyzed this and, and they're tracking it. And I can't remember the exact number but it's it's up in the you know the tens of thousands of acres it's uh it's it's measurable and it is affecting the it is shrinking the amount of uh productive land that that they still have um and 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 so it's not just that the population is growing and and outrunning the supply the supply itself is beginning to shrink in in uh uh, parts of Nigeria, so when we read about the, uh, the you know the stresses in Nigeria and the conflicts among tribal groups and this that and the other, uh mm-hmm. water is at the bottom of many of those they 're really really fighting over access to uh to water
0: mhm mhm, and is it occurring in Nigeria more so than perhaps other African countries because of the oil industry, the presence of their refineries,
1: um, oil has been a factor in southern Nigeria, and you know, in terms of water requirements, and uh, um, it's 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 made uh, parts of the country into. Uh, I mean, a water industry is developed there. Those who can pump water and who can find it, um, market it. So it's the commercialization commercialization of water in in southern Nigeria and the oil regions is is well underway. Um, The other interesting thing about the water issue, um, you know, with deforestation, for example, or desertification, we can see them. You can see, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, land that's been deforested, but you can't see falling water tables, and you discover them only when the wells start to go dry. And so oh. the, the, the water situation is far more serious than we realize because we can't see it.
0: Exactly. What is the, You bring another interesting point up and that is the relationship of deforestation as a phenomenon and the water crisis and the depletion of water. What, how would you describe that relationship?
1: Well, trees... Um, uh, hold water and, and retain it, um, whereas if you, if you deforest and the land is bare, then when the water comes down, it runs off uh, very quickly. Now, we're seeing a, a really interesting situation in Brazil because in the coastal areas, they are deforesting. They're clearing land for developments, for farming, um, housing, etc. But what that is doing is it is weakening the recycling of water inland so that when um, when you um, get to the uh, the interior of uh, Brazil and the um, um, i've forgotten the name of the large city that's being um, directly affected by this, but the recycling is weakened by deforestation, so the amount of water that 's moving inland in Brazil to reach the inland communities is declining um, and, mm. and and that calls into question whether or not those communities, some of them are cities can actually survive over the long term.
0: Mm, That's so serious. And of course, another major component that's affecting uh, water tables is climate change. And the actual, well, you know, I I talk about it mainly as extreme climates. It's going in both directions. There are signs and indications in both directions. Of course, we usually talk about it as an increase in uh, temperature. And there's, of course, historical data that, that bears that out. But, of course, if that continues as it is going at this current rate, then water tables are going to be shrinking all the more. We might have a little bit more humidity, but certainly drinkable, potable water is more, even faster disappearing. Yeah, the higher the
1: temperature, the faster water evaporates, um, and uh, the faster you uh, you lose it. And and once it's, it's it evaporates, then uh, you don't know where it's going to come down. It may come down over land where it's needed, and it may also uh, come down over oceans, which cover seventy percent of the of the Earth's uh, surface. Um, but climate change is going to be uh, uh, a major um, influence. And I, I remember when I was. Uh, farming back in the uh, uh, 50s in, in New Jersey growing tomatoes. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we would have, uh, you know, a drought uh, one year or something, but we didn't worry too much because next year things would likely go back to normal. The problem now is there's no norm to go back to. The the climate system's in the constant state of flux, and, and you just don't know, uh, you know, which way it's going to go. So it becomes very complicated. It's a very complex situation for farmers to try to try to plan now in a, in a, uh because they don't they simply don't know which way things are going to be going.
0: It creates a condition of food insecurity. And if there's food insecurity and water insecurity, there's psychological and emotional insecurity. And that creates conditions for very troubling times, it's just right. I,
1: I think simple. political political inse- insecurity and 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 social disintegration, the breakdown of societies, will be um, one of the consequences of of what's happening on with with water in the world today.
0: Exactly. Just looking at as you're speaking about tomatoes in New Jersey last, I'm thinking about almonds and pecans in California, and what's gone on even with some uh, recent uh, policy changes of the Brown administration, uh, it looks like the big ag boys have been left off the hook. And uh, it's really the small people, you know, the uh, everyday people who can't any longer even water their plants in their front yard are having to restrict their water use, whereas the big pecan and uh, walnut and almond farmers among others are able to do exactly as they wish and always have been. So what do you have but to even, say about even, that?
1: Even, yeah, even that is, is changing. they um, in this tightening water supply, um, it's beginning to affect, uh, affect everyone now in California. And, and um, I mean, California has been such a rich source of fruits and vegetables and nuts and so forth, you know, for the whole country and indeed some other parts of the world. But um, that takes water. And California, most of it, especially the southern two-thirds, is basically a desert. Um, but we 've had the water to you know convert that desert into some of the most productive farmland in the world but but that's that's beginning to uh, to change now
0: i've heard also that Lake Mead is so substantially down I mean it really might have another ten or fifteen years before it 's utterly completely um, depleted so therefore las Vegas and other regions of that area of Nevada and northern Arizona might really be out of water. Yes. Um it's
1: it's sort of scary to to think about it, but you can see I mean it's already happening the as as you mentioned Lake Mead has has less water in it it's had for you know for decades. Um um, but it it reflects the the drying out that 's underway, and it will ebb and flow you know depending on um, seasonal changes and and year to year uh, changes in in the amount of rainfall and so forth but uh, we 're looking at a at a restructuring of the of the economy in California
0: as a result
1: of aquifer depletion and and spreading water scarcity
0: interesting interesting so we <laughs> we have a situation in which we have technology that uh, some of it is fairly robust in uh, ways for all the way from purification is one area. Um, The other is um, desalination. What is your thought? I've always been concerned about desalination from a larger ecosystemic point of view that if nature made sure that most of the water we have on our water planet is salt water, and we begin to change that ratio based on our own overconsumption and our own lifestyle that uh, we, uh, as a population as a species, refuse to do much about to spend despite the water intensity it needs for instance, as you were talking about uh, grain and beef cattle uh, consumption. Um, What happens if we were to start relying increasingly on desalination as a water source? What do you think about that? Um,
1: We can desalt seawater, no question about it. We can do it on a pretty large scale. Um, It takes energy, uh, however. That's one thing to keep in mind. The other thing to keep in mind is that um, desalting is – uh, is costly, and you cannot afford to use desalted seawater for irrigation. I mean, it would it would drive the price it would drive the price of grain up by I don't know five or ten or twenty times or something. I mean, it, it would be huge. Um, mm-hmm. You can desalt for residential use. And a lot of cities around the world, including on the coast of California, towns and cities uh, rely on desalted water for residential use. But we don't use very much water for residential purposes. We use an enormous amount of water for irrigation. I think of all the un- underground water extraction in the world, about 80% goes for irrigation. Um, so it's, 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 it's whether or not we can afford to use or it's a matter of what we can afford to use desalted water for, and irrigation is not one of those things.
0: I see, I see. Are the other countries less in Africa uh, facing the same kind of crisis that Nigeria is, or is Nigeria uh, more alone in this regard?
1: Nigeria um, is, is suffering... Um, uh, more than most other countries in sub-Saharan Africa, um, partly because it has such a large population and one that's growing very fast. I mean, up until uh, uh, last year or two, there were no family planning programs in Nigeria. It was very difficult for women to get, um, um, uh, you know, reproductive health care and family planning services. Um, so mm-hmm. that's one reason why Nigeria has been uh, been growing um, Almost out of control in, in, in population terms, and and um, it it is overpopulated now in terms of what they can get in the way of of water and food. So it's um, it's in effect beginning to uh, to break down. And and, the, and and you read about the the internal fighting in Nigeria among different tribes and and parts of yes. the country and so forth. And and yes. much of that is is about access to water.
0: You know, uh, micro hydro. Electric uh, technologies are rather popular, uh, or becoming more so, I should say. And in fact, I have a couple of associates that are in Africa currently working on uh, different micro hydro. This is not damming, it doesn't require damming, it simply requires water currents. And that seems like it's moving along rather robustly, which means that there are plenty of rivers and tributaries throughout Africa that are uh, moving rapidly enough to create the current to generate electricity. So, I guess among the wind turbines and solar, uh, the um, micro hydro technology is another. Excellent place for renewable energies to be um, used. That's that's true. Um, um,
1: these sort of in-stream turbines now that
0: that have yes. become uh, that's what I'm talking in, about. Right, exactly. In yeah, in uh, yeah. In,
1: in many countries, um, can can produce electricity um, and are being used. There's more. I mean, more more going in every year now. Um, and, and so it'll help, um, but over the over the long term, uh, it probably will be will be further limited by the by the drying up of streams that's that's already underway. Um, and, yes. and some yeah. there are parts of the world now where uh, rivers and streams are are gone. Um, I mean, China, for example, and the northern half of China uh, once had you know I don't know twenty thousand lakes or so. They have. Only half that many now. The other half is simply dry.
0: Um, Oh, my God. uh, That That is so serious. That is is. so, I mean, it's hard to conceive 50%. China also being one of the oldest cultures, civilizations on our dear planet, you know, that 50% of it would be in that state right now. Right.
1: Yeah. And such an enormous population.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because of the
1: um, the contrast between the northern half of the country, which is drying out fast and wells are going dry, and the southern half of the country that's well watered and and, and doing very well.
0: Interesting, interesting. And is the northern half the more industrialized uh, region of China, as it is everywhere else in the world?
1: The, the northeast of China is uh, pretty heavily uh, industrialized, you know, uh, nearest to the coast, but but yes. southern China is is very prosperous and and uh, has a lot of uh, of of industry and uh, uh, in employment there. Um, the, the share of the population that's agricultural in northern China is, I think, substantially higher than in in southern China.
0: So what now? Uh, because we're beginning to head to a close here, I. I would love for our audience, Les, to hear from you what you feel would be kind of an outline, a a series of suggestions or recommendations that we could engage both on a personal level uh, and a community level, as well as really looking at the larger institutions of our society that could modify our water use Change our relationship to water. What recommendations would you make that could really um, uh, keep us from being heading toward that iceberg?
1: Well, no pun intended. Yeah, I I think one of the things we need um, is is some serious public education. Because I don't think even most political leaders now, whether state governors or you know members of Congress or what have you, um, have a, have a very good feel for how um, how serious the water situation is. At the personal level, there, there there are many things you can do. I mean, you could almost write a book about this. Um,
0: mm-hmm. Take showers. You probably are. Back and back.
1: Yeah, and uh, um, uh, and and you know, we almost by habit, many of us, you know. Take a shower every morning when we get up. Do we need to? You know, if if we're not working and you know, and and and, and uh, working up a sweat every day in our jobs,
0: mm-hmm. there's probably no reason
1: why we have to take a shower every day. Um, and and we can take showers instead of baths. I mean, taking a bath is going to become a luxury. We may be building yeah. homes in the future that won't even have bathtubs or just have showers because there won't be yeah, enough water. In the same way that many houses now are being built with solar panels automatically on the roof, we may someday not be automatically including bathtubs anymore because there may not be enough water to, uh, to warrant them. Yes.
0: Interesting. Yes. And so those are some of, so our own personal water use and water consumption, both for bathing, showering, as well as overall use of water. I mean, our Laundry systems use a certain amount. There are ways of reducing that as well. Uh, But I still have a feeling that this is a pittance, while I fully support what you're saying, personal responsibility for water use, and I've been engaged in that for decades, uh, and have been teaching about it uh, for decades as well. Let, the, let me say one
1: other. Let, let me make please. just one other point on that. The, the the biggest thing we can do to reduce water use is to move down the food chain. That's where you 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 really begin to pick up the chips.
0: Yes, yes. So what you're saying is less beef to no beef, less poultry to no poultry. Uh, I guess ironically, less fish or. To no fish, and more and more, increasingly proportionately, toward the plants, plant-based foods. Right. Uh, I I
1: I would point out that um, um, farmed fish are very efficient at converting grain uh, into meat. You know, catfish can convert corn into into uh, meat very 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 efficiently. Another. Um, fish as well. I just happen to know the the ratio for catfish. One pound of of grain will get you one pound of additional body weight. Um, so it's, it's 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 quite efficient. So we don't have to eliminate seafood from our diets. We just have to uh, um, uh, uh, design the system so that we can produce yes. the, um, the the fish that we need um, uh, in a in an efficient uh, way.
0: Yes, well that's interesting. The problem that I'm aware of and I'd love to hear what you have to say is uh, perhaps not that but rather that the toxicity of the water increases tremendously in fish farms to the extent that these fish are really kind of swimming in their own excrements.
1: Right. The um, One of the... Um... Uh, ways of dealing with this is to treat the uh, the fish waste as as fertilizer and use it on on nearby cropland
0: in the same way yes. that we
1: do for for raising chickens, for example. We collect the manure and, and uh, it goes back on the uh, on the land, um, and we can do that with fish as well. Um, it's yes. entirely entirely yes.
0: So even though there are say fish ponds, you know. Uh, that water could be cleansed um and take that waste and use it for these other agricultural f- fertilization purposes interesting yeah, that,
1: that waste is nutrient rich and uh, and um, yes. should go back on the land
0: mm-hmm. I know i used to use i used to go to the local market and get fish heads. For my own small little garden back in when I was a teenager growing up in Connecticut, so I appreciate what you're saying. That's, um, but that's what
1: Native Americans were doing before before Columbus arrived.
0: They were yeah, using fish so, as a fertilizer. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so interesting! That's so interesting. Everything comes full circle, Les. Obviously, now, yeah, it was, one, it it was so, one of those
1: t- It was one of those times where converting um, fish. Into grain made economic sense because there was an abundance of fish in all the streams and lakes and everything. But grain yes. was more difficult for them to produce, so they 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 used, um, used the fish for fertilizer to produce grain. Um, that's that's uh, a rare situation, but that that's what was was happening back then.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Now, what is the role of, you mentioned coming down the, to greater simplicity to a plant-based bi- diet, that that would be the largest of the hierarchy of actions that we can take to uh, mitigate water use, reduce our, our consumption of water, and you know, upstream, no pun intended, of all of the manufacturing processes that result in our buying a piece of meat and consuming it on the local retail level. What about population? I'd imagine that is another major, major force here about, as you've talked about in Pakistan, Northern India, and India in general, China obviously, although they've reined in their population tremendously. What Would that be the second uh, point to make? About population control. Yeah,
1: um, getting the brakes on population would be priority number one. The second thing we can do, um, and and I'll illustrate this with an example. In India, uh, annual grain consumption per person is about 400 pounds a year, or about a pound a day. You need about a pound of grain a day just to keep body and soul together. In this country, our grain consumption per person is about 1,400 pounds uh, per year. Um, and we of that, we consume less than 150 pounds directly as, you know, bread and, and pastry and, and so forth. Um, the yes. The bulk, the great bulk of that is consumed um, in the form of meat. We convert a lot of grain into meat in this country. And, that, and that's why we consume about 1,400 pounds of grain per person per year, oh. whereas in India it's only 400 pounds.
0: Yes. I see. I see. So... Between meat consumption and the like, and population expansion. So if these two were brought under control, and I imagine the next would just be overall um, big ag. I mean, commercial agricultural turbines as a as an industry is as you I think you said that's the largest. Consumer of water of of all
1: yeah um in in thinking about um um the growth in the demand for food and therefore for water population is number one it is it is the largest the the second largest okay. is rising affluence and and its effect on on food consumption on 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 enabling people to move up the food chain. So population is number one. Rising affluence is number two. And um, we need, you know, a certain amount of of grain to to meet our basic needs, but we are consuming in this country far more than we need to because of our overconsumption of livestock products. Yes, yes, yes
0: wow and and how about industrial it sounds like industrial use is somewhat well fossil fuel we talked about fossil fuel uh coal you specifically mentioned and of course oil refining fracking and,
1: and fracking for natural gas yeah um those are those are um uh places where um in, in, in industry, in 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 moving into the fracking age, if you will, um, has not really thought about much about water efficiency uh, because they can afford to spend quite a bit on water given the the price of the of the energy they're they're producing. But they need to be reined in. I mean, it's interesting that New York State, as you probably know, has banned fracking altogether.
0: Yes, and, I do. Yeah, I, I think.
1: One of the reasons is the demand for water, and the other is the pollution of water.
0: Yes, yes. And everything we've been talking about has really been more about the very volume of water and not really about what's potable, what's usable, what's polluted, contaminated, and toxic. So that becomes a whole other division of conversation regarding how much of the water on the planet is even usable at this point based right. on our common industrial practices, right?
1: We've, we've we what's the going point,
0: on in Flint, Michigan, for instance, Newark, right. New Jersey, right?
1: Right? Right? Now we've reached the point where where pollution is beginning to affect the supply of of safe fresh water. And, and so that's something we have to deal with.
0: Incidentally, I have a dinner
1: appointment tonight, so I'm going to have to uh, pull Exactly.
0: Out. We've gone on beyond what I thought. Your final words, our, your last words right now to our audience, what would you like us to everyone to be mindful of?
1: I think I think we all need to know more about water and, uh, and the ways in which we use it and uh, how we can reduce our demand for water without um, uh, you know changing our lifestyles or or reducing the quality of life in any any important way but water um i mean we've we we've, we've worried about the the availability of grain of of land in the past you know enough land to produce our food but there, there's plenty of land out there the constraint now is water you you could yes. have land but if you don't have the water to go with it it's not very productive Um, So water is emerging as a major issue in this century, and that's why I've said, well, the last century was the oil century. This is going to be the water century.
0: Yes, exactly. Well, Lester Brown, I want to just thank you so much for all of your work for so many years, as well as your being a guest on today's show to talk about this vitally important subject with our audience, and uh, it's of immeasurable value. Thank you so much for your good work and for uh, being on our show today.
1: And and, and I I would close by saying I wouldn't be doing it if it weren't so much fun.
0: <laughs> well, then come back and have fun again. I'd love it.
1: Okay. Thanks, Wonderful. Mitchell.
0: Thank you. Uh-huh. Lester Brown. Good night. Lester Brown. Brilliant, brilliant man obviously you just heard who has been sharing with our audience this is the second time now uh, that he has been on with us talking about these incredibly important subjects and uh, we just can't get enough of the understanding of the importance of these subjects and what it takes to digest the facts that we are depleting our water reserves and how that will be changing literally the face of the planet and has been changing the face of the planet for a long time at this point. So I want to just thank all of you for listening in today. And remember, the uh, we have two problems. On the one hand, we've got the depletion of water reserves. And on the other, we have rising sea levels. Uh, ironic and paradoxical as that may sound. And uh, both are of such importance. One of fresh water and one of salt water. So we want to just bring things into balance, which is what Native peoples, Indigenous peoples have been seeking to teach us all along. So on that note, I want to just thank you all for listening in today. And again, uh, my website is www.abetterworld.tv. Join us for our on our uh, newsletter, which we give out for free by email every week, and we look forward to seeing you all next week.